Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Trisha Keffer, your host on New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. Today's guest is noted architect Paul McLean, and the book is McLean Design, Creating the Contemporary House, published by Rizzoli in 2019. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tricia. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, so I'd like to start off with, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Paul McLean. I'm an architect, grew up in Ireland and uh, wanted to be an architect since I was a very little boy, probably about four years old. And uh, since then, I've really been interested in residential architecture. And uh, from an early age, I started to design houses, uh, found the names of some famous architects over the years when I was at school like Frank Lloyd Wright and Richard Neutra, and later Frank Gehry and some of the case study house designers in Los Angeles. And that inspired me to move from my home in Ireland to Los Angeles. And I set up an office here in the year 2000. And we've been working ever since, mainly on residential homes here in California and a little bit further away. Oh, so where did you go to school? What were your, um, how did you uh, get into architecture? What did you do? Did you study in Europe? The United States? No, I, I studied in Ireland. So I grew up, went to high school in Ireland and got interested in trying to figure out how to go to school. And I got some help from people at school who directed me towards an architecture school in Dublin where I studied. And I studied there for five years and took two years off in between, traveled the world, worked for an architecture firm. And uh, from there, I, I was always intrigued with Los Angeles because I think as a place, it's been a crucible for residential design for well over 100 years at this point now. And so I set off after I finished college to get out here and try and see if I could contribute in some way to that. Well, that's interesting. Is it, um, well, I, actually, I have been to Dublin. It was a lot of fun. Um, and the countryside. How is uh, architecture then different in, are you from Dublin or where in Ireland? I'm from Dublin originally, and I grew up in Dublin, which is a very tight, small urban environment and, and relatively old. There's a lot of history there. So it's quite the opposite to the greater LA area where everything is relatively new, quite spread out, and there's a lot more space, I guess, to work with. So how is it, uh, just in general, we'll just start off with, how is it different from Los Angeles to that for school and study and, and how you design? Well, I think, you know, schooling is not so different. Architecture school is not so different. I mean, they're approaching the same type of projects. People explore different types of buildings, whether it's school. Uh, we study the international architects of the last hundred years or so, as well as architectural history. And I think they do similar things here. It's mainly a studio-based project process, excuse me. So you do study models and you design buildings on, on a case kind of project by project basis through four to five years of architecture school. And that would be the same here as it is in Dublin. And I think not very different. 
But the the urban environment is incredibly different. And the streets obviously are much wider. The lots are bigger. Things are way more spread out in California than they are in Dublin, where the the opportunity to be creative is a little bit limiting uh, compared to here. There's a context that's much older, and you need to respond to that context. Here, you can sort of let your imagination run a little wild. and That's one thing I like about working here. Oh, well, that's true. Well, Los Angeles is a lot of creative people, so that... um... Lots of opportunity out there. Not necessarily keep it traditional, Tricia, but there is a historical context that you need to be very aware of. And I think that makes an impact on what you can possibly design. Also, I think in Los Angeles in general, there's a lot of creative people like you mentioned here, and uh, there is a lot of exposure to creative ideas, and people are open in a way that they're maybe not as open in other places in the world. So they're willing to take chances and give you opportunities, I think, at an earlier point in your career than they would be in other places. Oh, yeah, that's true. Well, let me ask you, so what was your motivation for writing this book? Well, we are coming up on 20 years of McLean Design. Actually, next year, our firm will be 20 years old. And we've had the opportunity to work on over 50 homes in that time period. So I I really felt it was the right time to try and almost catalog some of our favorite projects and get them out there to a wider audience and just reflect a little bit on where we've been and where we're heading. Uh, so let's start with, um, you talked about in the book, like some of your earliest influences. Um, and uh, now you have to pronounce your name and so that our American audience can pronounce it right. Uh, can you say your last name? McLean. McLean. Okay. Cause I, I know that everybody's going to say <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I hear my own accent when I say that. <laughs> I'm not too worried about how they pronounce it, though. <laughs> you know, I was going to say <laughs> McLean. <laughs> that works for me, too. <laughs> and, and the irony is your designs are, well, clean and modern, clean. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that is that is somewhat ironic. We, we, some friends of mine do say, you know, can you take the design and clean it up? <laughs> uh, what, what a perfect name for an architect, huh? And you, you come by it honestly. <laughs> well, you know, my wife's last name was Flex, so that would have also been a good name, I guess. <laughs> Flexible design. <laughs> Flexible, clean design. There you go. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that when everybody Googles this book, that they know that they understand that uh, how to spell it and, but the correct way to say it. Um, right. So, um, well, tell us about some of your early influences. Why, why are your designs so clean and modern? Well, I've always been fascinated by the interaction of the environment with people. And I've, I've always, especially coming here to this climate, one of the things obviously that's most attractive about Southern California is the climate in that it's very mild and it's very rare that it's super hot and very rare that it's super cold. So it allows you to design in a way where you can be more exposed to nature. And I don't know, from very early age, I just really loved the idea of homes that had an that interacted with their environment and that could be perhaps a little flexible in their design that you could pull walls away and open them up. And uh, from, from probably the age of about nine or 10, I think I discovered Frank Lloyd Wright. And I remember 
seeing his falling water house back then and being somewhat perplexed by it and confused and excited at the same time, not quite understanding that that could be a house too and you could live in that way with nature and with with spaces that were sometimes indoors and sometimes outdoors. So we kind of started from there. I started from there and developed from there. And we continue to try and break down those boundaries between indoor and outdoor space. And we've been really fortunate that a lot of the projects we've got to work on have been on really wonderful lots with fantastic views or of nature, of the city, of the ocean. So we try our best with our design just not to get in the way of that. Uh, yeah. So it was, uh, I noticed these in your, in the book, it's, uh, one in particular, there's a, a tree in the courtyard, um, and you had stepping stones across water to go into the entrance too, maybe, um, Yes, yeah, we use a lot of water in our designs, and and I think that part of that's probably coming from a from a wet environment. Growing up myself, <laughs> I miss the rain in some ways, um, but I think when you're in a in a an arid environment, uh, if you look back at history, uh, architectural history over the last four or five thousand years since people really started building things in an urban environment, water has been essential to that, especially in, in arid places and desert-like places. So we try to bring water into their designs as much as possible. And we find not only do they have a calming effect, and we use them often to try and change perception. So if you're coming home after a long day and you have to cross stepping stones over water before you reach your front door, it changes your perception of where you are and feeling you feel the cool breeze off the water and it, it just is a way of kind of welcoming you home for example or calming you i think water is often very calming for people particularly in in this type of environment we also use water uh, to reflect and so we will use water to reflect light into basements we'll use water to reflect the landscape like a painting and we'll also use water for natural cooling you know if you, if you can have a breeze come over water it will naturally dehumidify a space a little bit or add humidity i should say and uh make it cooler so we, we find many uses for water in our designs and you also use a lot of stonework too yeah well i think that's one thing that's always been fascinating for me as well is that you know i think growing up in a, in a place like ireland where there's so many ancient uh, buildings and so much stonework and they all it feels so grounded you know, grounded into the earth. And I, I've always been fascinated by that that area between the grounded part of the stone and the lightness of the glass and the steel, that there's this tension almost between buildings that feel in some ways like they're part of the earth and in other ways they feel like they'll fly away. Oh, yeah, there you go. I mean, and, and let me ask you, you know, sometimes it's so hard to be simple um, and achieve simplicity. How do you, how do you, design with restraint do you know what i'm kind of getting that's at? an excellent yes i really do Trisha. that's an excellent question i mean that's the, the for us that's really the essence of much of what we do i feel that designs can very easily get away from you they can run away from you and that they can get overtly complicated very fast and it's really important to try and figure out what is the essence of what you're trying to achieve and you know, simplicity is often the hardest thing to, to achieve because there are so many contradictory things that are trying to 
happen in a design or things you have to accommodate that don't necessarily work with the symmetry or the simplicity of the project. So it's it can be quite a challenge to do that. But I also feel strongly, actually, that buildings and homes particularly need to be a background that you live your life within. And I think that if they are so complicated and, I guess, aggressive in the design that you're constantly distracted by it, that that's also a, a failure in a way. The design should be beautiful and calming, but it shouldn't take over your life. You should allow you to live in a comfortable, practical way. Yeah, you know, when I, when I opened your book, just so the audience says this is audio, I want to give them a little visual too, is that, um, yeah, I opened a book, I'm like, oh, it's just, it was just so like peaceful and um, calming, even just to look at these, these pictures of these houses and these landscapes. That's that's exciting to to hear that and to to have you have that feeling because that's obviously what we're we're trying to achieve a lot and we seeing the landscape as well. I mean that's something we try very hard to make sure that the house does not get in the way of its setting that you can get the most out of the setting that we have available to us. And that doesn't often always have to mean that you need a, the perfect site with the perfect view because we will go out of our ways to try and edit views in, in a way that's almost uh, cinematic, that we'll look at a site and there'll always be something that bothers us. Perhaps there's another house next door or uh, a, a you know, power line or, or something that's in the way of the view. And we'll use landscaping, for example, or uh, we'll use the water features. We'll, we'll use the water to limit where people can actually stand on the lot so that they become less aware of the street below and cars and so on, for example. So you can do a lot with editing to improve the view and focus people on what you're trying to get them to be aware of. Yeah, because I was thinking about it. I was looking at some of these pictures and it was like, yeah, my, uh, my attention was definitely more focused on the outside, almost not that the interior design isn't beautiful, but it was really focused on the outside instead of the inside. Right, right. And I think that's that's something that I, I really am aware of and I'm trying to achieve. And um, you talked about, you also collaborate, you said, with uh, interior and uh, landscape architects. And uh, what's your collaborative process? How do you, how do you work it out uh, as a team to make decisions on design? Well, we start with the owner. Obviously, they're the most important person in this, this process. We're designing these homes for an owner. And so we start working with them programmatically to try and figure out what it is they're trying to achieve. And one of the interesting things I've found over the years is if you ask our average client what they want, they usually describe where they currently live with some things that they're missing or wish they had, which is really interesting. And I guess people are, by their nature, habitual and uh, they adapt. So so they look at where they are and they go, I like this, but I don't like this aspect of it. So we try to kind of question that a little bit and try and work with them to figure out how they really want to live. For example, you know, people often have businesses they run from home and that's an easy question to ask someone, you know, do you work at home that way? Or do you have, for example, an elderly relative or another family member that's going to live with you? And people answer that question pretty easily. But then we try and figure out, well, how does that really work? I mean, how, what happens when that person comes to the house if it's a business person? What do you want them to see? Do you want them to see the house? Do you want them to come in a side entrance? And so we start working through the program in a more detailed way, asking them, for example, how do they eat? 
you know, where do they eat? How do they entertain? How many people do they want to entertain? You know, some families like to entertain 300 on a regular basis. We've had a couple <laughs> of clients. Some people never entertain, you know, so those can all be important to designing a house for a home or a home for a family that really is appropriate to their lifestyle without obviously limiting in case of future changes that it wouldn't work for somebody else. So once we have that program together, then we introduce our other consultants and usually like landscapers and interior designers and obviously structural engineers and civil engineers and so on. But we, we kind of sit with them and try and figure out what, what, what did they see that response to that program as well and try and help them understand what, what limitations we ourselves are working under and what possibilities there are and let them as much as possible bring their own creative process to the table. We really don't want to restrict people that way. And I guess one thing, Trisha, I learned a while ago is that I think our homes and our designs, they, they stand for themselves. The art style comes through, you know, even when people tell us different things, like they may be like, like they might see a home that's more perhaps Mediterranean in style, but we'll try and get into that. Well, what do you really like about it? And maybe it's a courtyard or something. And then we'll incorporate that idea into a contemporary design. And so our design comes through anyway. So we, we definitely see collaboration as a way to expand upon that and to make the designs better and more appropriate for the people that are going to live there. Do you do like a little design charrette? Sometimes, you know, but I think we usually quickly come to a floor plan because it's the easiest way to start the process. And I think one of the problems or issues or challenges we have these days with so many great tools, because now we can produce 3D models and videos and so on, it's just helping our clients understand that just because it looks like a house doesn't mean that that's the house they're going to get at the end or that they have to like it. Because in a way, we have to not forget that this whole process is communication. So it's as useful for me at that early stage in a design for you to say that you hate it as you love it, that the least useful thing is to not give us any opinions. <laughs> so you sure about that? <laughs> well, I'm sure. yes. Sometimes I may rue it, but it's the best way to get the result. <laughs> no, it is. I agree. I was just uh, making a joke, but um, so let me ask you, you know, you, Obviously, in here too, I noticed that you're, um, yeah, you've got the floor plans, the 3D models. Do you still? Let me ask you, because this has been, you know, a kind of a debate in, in in my channel here a little bit. I interview people that like hand drawing or people that like the computer graphics. Do you do you still hand draw? Personally, I still hand draw. I, I draw in little notebooks. I used to draw proper 3D perspectives in color by hand, but. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depends which way, I, I miss the process, but um, it's so much easier today. If you build a computer model, you can perhaps produce 30 or 40 different views of, of that same building, which really, really happens in the same time where I might have done one or two finished sketches. So if you come back to that idea that it's really all about communication, it does make more sense to do it digitally because you can get a lot more information across and then get the right responses to it. But having said that, all of my initial ideas come through hand drawing. 
And there's something that I, I have never been able to figure out or see someone do with a computer where when your hand is moving over a sketch paper and you're looking at what you're drawing, sometimes it changes and it evolves as you draw it. And it's not really very precise. It's a very fluid process. And I don't know how you could do that on a computer. So I think for me personally, I'll never stop sketching. I wish I had more time to do kind of finished artistic drawings, but I, I know that doesn't make much sense anymore for me. But um, both processes are really important to how we produce our designs. Yeah, that's true. I agree. If you if you once you build a three D model, you could just zoom around and and it's it's kind of fun. It's it's like a little video game almost. Yeah, and for people, they can understand it better. And I, I do notice, Tricia, like in the last ten years or so, as this process has become way more prevalent, at least in our office, that uh, we see less and less in the way of changes in the field in the construction process. I mean, small things always get changed, materials change, but. I remember back 15, 20 years ago, you would draw things and people, you know, most people don't understand, you know, 2D floor plans and elevations and sections and they're not, they don't have the time to be trained in that. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of difference between a two-dimensional plan and a three-dimensional building. And often that gets lost in the, in the communication process. So you used to see a lot more framing changes the building will go up and people will be like gosh i didn't realize that that was happening there or whatever and we'd all have to make changes which of course are much more costly than doing it in a computer what we're finding today as well is we're slowly moving into kind of a virtual reality uh, model where we will we've just started to bring clients in and put goggles on them and have them pre-walk around the structure and it's it's that's definitely where it's going in the future and it's really amazing that the amount of information and detail you can see and i think we're going to see a lot more of that oh that sounds cool yeah that's a good way to get feedback it really is and people can you know, it's amazing how realistic the proportions are within so you see things that even we would ourselves miss like you turn around and something catches your eye perhaps up in a corner of the space two two things don't come together quite naturally or don't feel comfortable and even though you've got a 3d model and you're spinning it around on your screen you don't necessarily see everything that's happening so i think it's going to help to improve the process even even more than the transition from hand drawing to computer graphics has mm, yes but I, but I do agree sometimes there is something about just at least starting with a hand drawing that um get, get, gets the creative juices flowing a little bit maybe i agree i mean i think that's a different discussion you know yeah i absolutely and i'm not sure that i often see it's very easy as well to manipulate computer images to make them look cool and sexy. But sometimes you, as you look closer, you see there's not really that much happening in there design-wise, you know. <laughs> One-dimensional, you know, where when you actually are physically drawing with your hands and that connection between your hand and your brain can really uh, improve the design process. So I just don't see it going away, you know, but I'm not sure how a younger generation is really handling that. It'll be very interesting to see. With some people growing up today probably are doing everything in a computer. Probably. Uh, well, on that note, let's start with a project. I'm going to start with um, Robin, and it's on page... 180. Can you talk, well, talk about this project. I just, I like the photographs in it. And, and yeah, this is where you're, um, you've designed, um, yeah, this, this beautiful entrance and water and 
stone underneath the water and the starry nights, it's, um, it's completely open. <laughs> yes. Well, one thing we did with that project, which I, I, I really liked, uh, first of all, it was an unusual shaped lot and it's kind of a peninsula. So it has a spectacular view all, all over the Los Angeles basin. So you see all the city lights of downtown LA and it goes right across the basin to the ocean and Catalina Island and so on. So it's this spectacular view. And so we wanted to make the most of the view. So that was one of the first things we were thinking about. And then obviously we wanted to open the house as much as possible to that view and to create as many spaces that connected to that view as possible. But the other thing we were thinking about was that if we were able to screen off the street and the other homes behind it with landscaping and vegetation, that it would also be possible to open the house to a garden space. And so the sequence is you come into a drive court and you pass through some screens and then you're in this garden and it's a water garden. And, you know, again, like we talked about earlier, changing your perception. So as you cross the water garden, you relax, you're home, you, you start to see the view. But one of the things that's also really nice when you're in the house is you can look back at the garden, which is so different to the view of the city over the pool. So you have this contrast between all the sparkling lights and the water and the ocean and the big expansiveness on one side of the main spaces. And on the other side, it's an intimate, garden with a water feature and places to sit and beautiful trees and so that's what I probably like most about that project just the contrast between the two sides and the fact that you can open both walls completely up so it's like a pavilion in the garden yeah I do I I love this you got a I've got a living room inside the pool and yes that too that was a fun idea <laughs> We have this, um, yeah, we sat this, you know, this fire pit and water area inside the pool itself where you could sit inside the pool, look at the fire pit at nighttime, have your hands trailing in the water. And I, I have to say we've had uh, the pleasure of being at a couple of events at that house, uh, including a wedding. And uh, that was everybody's favorite spot, just sitting there in the water. So, so I guess, well, yeah. You have to keep it clean, though. <laughs> the housekeeper in me comes out with like, so, yeah, so I guess you could swim around. You could still jump in it, but, you know, got to keep it dry and clean if you want to sit outside later, I guess. I don't know. Well, you know, it's very dry here and the sun shines a lot. <laughs> it's not a huge worry. <laughs> well, that's true. You know? Again, that's one of the advantages of working in, in Southern California is that some of those worries that I grew up with, like, take all the cushions in, it's going to start raining. That doesn't happen here that much. <laughs> Well, you could tell I'm talking from Florida when I'm going, well, you know, it's going to rain and, and you got to, <laughs> and I'm looking at it going, it's just all windows. And, um, yeah, if we're here, you know, we have, we have screens at all of our windows. It's, it's a tropical environment I'm, for, for our audience. I'm, I'm in Miami here and, um, yeah, so, or Key Largo. And so it's like, oh, it's a little different over this way. That's true. I mean, and that's another unique advantage of Southern California is there really aren't very many bugs, which uh, make it very easy to just break down that tradition, a transition between indoors and outdoors. So we, we can have our walls of glass disappear into pockets and so on. And we don't necessarily have to worry about screens very much. And that's also really something very nice from an architectural perspective, though not very practical in a lot of other parts of the world. <laughs> 
Well, I wasn't going to say that, but yeah, that's true. Uh, we do have you know <laughs> bugs. It's it's just I grew up with them. I didn't, didn't think anything about it when I visited California one time. My friends, I'm like, "Where's your screens?" And they're like, "What screens?" I'm like, "Bugs." And they're like, "What bugs?" I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I'm not sure if there's just no bugs because it's a desert, or is no bugs because it's just too many people. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the bugs got scared off. Um, so tell me, uh, what's one of your favorite projects in a book? You know, it's really hard. I, 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 that's a question I really don't like because they're, they're all unique and interesting in their own ways. And I could literally tell you one thing I love about every project in the book. And sometimes I feel it's a bit like having a favorite child. You know, some things you like about them and you don't like about them, but you love them all equally, right? So... Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a tough one. There are some projects that I really like, for example, like the, the, the Ellis home on Temple Hills drive and, uh, via Mallorca. I like because they're smaller in scale and they're more intimate and we had fun designing them and wonderful clients because, you know, we had to really work hard to get in those smaller spaces to get them to work as well as some of the larger homes. But, um, so I like those for that reason. And then I like other ones because of the view. I like Robin because of the pavilion feeling. I love the last one in the book. I think it's Skylark, which has these massive swinging doors that swing up and create canopies and very, very fun project to work on and wonderful clients. But it's really hard to pick one project. <laughs> Okay, I'm just going to start going down the list then. Uh, let's see. Well, talk about one of your first projects maybe out there and how you've evolved um, over time into this book. How has your uh, designs evolved? I think that over the years, I, I feel like a lot of the original, the ideas that I like the most about how our projects are and what we like to achieve, I knew about those ideas or I thought about those ideas early on, but often we didn't really know how to make them really work. And that's been, I think, the learning experience of the last 20 years of McLean Design, which is feels constantly like a classroom. It's just constantly trying to think of ways to make things better, to maybe achieve the same idea, but perfect it a little bit more. Um, even detailing, you know, like originally how we trans transitioned out through walls of glass. We, we, the doors were smaller. They had thresholds. We learned how to bury the thresholds. We learned how to bury them completely and make them disappear. And, you know, as, as time goes on, we've developed ways of, of perceiving space that are more refined, I guess. And that's, you know, my goal as, as I go forward is to try and continue to perfect these homes and make them a little bit better each time and more responsive to their clients needs and more responsive to the environment in general and uh, in, in all in all just make better homes and so I think there's been a journey not just for me but for many architects since the, the middle or early part of the last century when modernism exploded across the earth and People had these wonderful ideas that broke away from the past. And you see that in the work of people like Rudolf Schindler and Richard Meyer, who are not Richard Meyer, Richard Neutra, who came here from Europe in the 1930s to California and started building these homes that were about health and connection to the outdoors. But you go visit some of those homes and they kind of feel like they're held together with duct tape and paint and <laughs> 
you know, the, the glass is, it, you roast and you freeze and so on. And, but the ideas are wonderful. And, and I think we are learning as we've got better technology now and we can do things better and make them stronger and make them more, more livable. And so we continue to explore those ideas and develop them further uh, as, as time goes by. Yeah, well, you know, um, you're talking about like modernism, um, you know, it's obviously in, in your design, but you know, there's, there's no lack of detail. Um, there's still a lot of like little tiny details I notice, um, in, in all of your work in the interior and in the exterior. Um, what do you think about that? Modernism isn't about lack of ornate details. Do you think? No, I think modernism, I mean, modernism, I mean, people talk about modern houses and contemporary houses, and we all don't really know what we mean by all that. You know, we just, they react to today. I mean, for me, our homes are, are modern in the sense that they are uh, of this time, and we're trying to respond to the time we're living in. We're not, you know, we're not kind of going back through a catalog of historical details and replicating something that looks like Versailles. So, uh, you know, we're just working with the environment and the views and the technology that we have available to us. But I don't think of them as completely stripped down. There, there, There's always an element of detail. We, we're obsessed with detail sometimes and trying to make them really good and make them work well. But to me, a good detail is something that achieves its purpose really elegantly. And I guess elegance is a word that I've always felt is underused sometimes in architecture. And sometimes when you're at school, people were obsessed about theory and, you know, what this meant in terms of history and so on. And not enough time was spent just saying if something was beautiful or elegant. And I think those are things that pass the test of time. Oh, that's true. If it's just beautiful, it's sim- simplicity, just beautiful elegance. For its own sake, it doesn't have to tell you a story about something that happened in 2020. You know, it just has to be beautiful for its own sake. <laughs> well, that's true. And I was thinking, and I'm, I'm on the page 54. I'm skipping around. I think I was saying Oriel Drive. Yes. And you've got, you've got a beautiful, I, I just, I love the artwork here. Um, right at the pool deck. Um, was this a, can you tell us more about the client? What, uh, what inspired uh, the artwork for this project? So what was interesting with that project is it's a, if for the Hollywood Hills, it's a very large lot. It's about an acre and it's basically a flat lot, which is also very unusual, uh, mainly flat. But it's kind of a rectangle where the view is at the short end of the rectangle. So that's the challenge there. So we, we designed it in a way to bring people on a journey through the house to get them to that view and to connect them to that view from as many places as possible within the project. So we, we put the main body of the house out where the view is, of course, but we made the drive court in the middle of the lot. So it gave you a sense of entry, but you arrived at this drive court. We put a guest house against the street and a, a glass garage, somewhat reminiscent of Ferris Bueller, uh, right opposite that courtyard. And we connected it all with a water feature that ended up being almost 300 feet long 
when it connects. So it feels like you can stand in the guest house and your eye will follow the water. It leads you through the main house, which is very transparent and ends in a sculpture. So to draw your eye through. So that was really what was most important in that project to try and connect the spaces and pull you towards the view. And the sculpture itself just had to be something that would work in that case. It almost looks like, um, to me, it reminds me of a, like a musical staff or maybe a, something along that ins- nature for inspiration looks a bit, uh, or maybe it's just curvy, curved with the water and the waves of the water. Something that contrasts with the water and, you know, contrasts with the rectilinearity of the building as well. Okay, well, I won't make you pick a favorite one, but I'll go to another <laughs> one. Uh, <laughs> I'll just keep going down the list here. Um, tell me about Williams. Um, this I like the, the the pool, this soft lighting in the pool. It gives a really uh, starry Van Gogh effect uh, to it. So I, I, I could see some like European influence here in a sense. You know, it's some of that was just very simple, beautiful artwork, too. Yeah, you know, this this house, I mean, Williams was an interesting house as well in the sense it was very high up on a hill. And it's a view that you rarely see, or I've rarely seen at least in Beverly Hills or, or Los Angeles, because you're so high up that everything, it feels like you're on clouds. And that was a one of the original inspirations for the house. It felt like you were in an airplane or in a cloud. And so a lot of that white marble was about that feeling. And the contrast between the white and the green and just there's so much green in that view versus buildings. The buildings seem far away. It's absolutely spectacular at nighttime because, you know, you get all the twinkly lights as far as your eye can see. And then you've got the stars twinkling over hell, overhead and everything reflecting in the swimming pool. So um, that was one of the main inspirations for that and also it's one of our our basement courtyard houses which you'll find a few of them in the book and something that i think our firm is somewhat known for that you know these properties can be very expensive and uh, people really want to try and make the most out of the property and often they're limited in the amount of uh, building or square footage that you can have but one place where traditionally at least you have not been very limited is what you put underground but underground space isn't the same as above ground space. So we worked with many ideas to try and maximize basement areas, but not make them feel like basements. And this is a good example there where you'll see there's a courtyard off the entry and all of the basement space is open to this courtyard. But it's it's more than a light well. It's it's an experience in itself. There's a there's a pool of water with a tree and you can open the glass on three sides to this pool. And the whole basement can kind of interact with the exterior that way. So that, that's something that you'll see a lot of in, in the book and in our work is different ways of connecting basement space to the exterior so that it doesn't feel like basements. And also a lot of water in these basement courtyards because it helps to reflect the light and make the basements brighter. And also bridges. We use bridges a lot. And we use bridges to change people's mood. It's very exciting to cross a bridge to get to the front door. People get very excited about that. I I always love that. Yeah, that's true. I've noticed uh, several of these. You You have different style bridges for everybody. Yeah. I remember a long time ago, Tricia, when I was a student, I went to the University of East Anglia in England. And it's a very old uh, 1960s, brutalist type uh, structure. 
where you have elevated concrete walkways like you see in that style of brutalism in the 60s. And there's a moment where you walk off the, the concrete bridge and onto a steel and glass bridge designed by Lord Norman Foster and the Sainsbury Centre. It's the entrance of the Sainsbury Centre there, which is a museum that he designed there. And it's such a great moment because you're, you're on this big, massive concrete structure and then suddenly you're walking on almost like a catwalk through trees in glass and it's it's almost like you you've been elevated your mood is completely changed and that's something that always stuck with me and and I think about that often in terms of we talked earlier about creating entrance about changing people's perception when they come home to these houses that they they move away from their day-to-day world living they come home there's a feeling at the entrance which defines that that moment you're home and bridges and these stepping stones over water, it can achieve that for us. They, they slow you down, they make you aware of your surroundings and make you feel a little bit different and hopefully more relaxed, unless you're afraid of heights. <laughs> well, I was about to ask you, a lot of these houses are, are on hilltops. There was next one I was going to uh, go to was uh, 128, the Hillcrest, but I guess Los Angeles is all about the hills. Well, I think what you'll find in, in Los Angeles is that, yeah, there are very unique, uh, different communities and areas, but we generally have been fortunate to be working in the hills, which, of course, is where you get the views. And that's what is so exciting about these houses, that you can open them up to the view. Um, it's a little harder if you're if you're down in the flatter areas of town, but the, many of the homes, the iconic homes you've seen, that are, are here in Los Angeles from the last hundred years or so are all set on different hills, whether it's Beverly Hills or Bel Air or Hollywood Hills or even the Palisades, Pacific Palisades. There's, there's a lot of geographical interest in the greater Los Angeles area, and it gives us great opportunity to be creative, I think. Well, I have to say, I've been to Los Angeles before, and uh, I obviously I, I live in the flatlands uh, here in South Florida, and my ears would pop going up and down the hills because <laughs> the change in elevation actually made my ears pop up. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The, the the land, you know, we are in a place of earthquakes, but the hills are generally very stable, and you know that it can be a little cooler up in the hills, but. Down the flats, a lot of the land tends to be, you know, can potentially be liquefied. It's kind of a reverse of what you would expect that way. So in some ways, it's safer to live in the hills. One thing, though, a funny story, I remember a client telling me that back in the 1970s and 80s, it was really easy to buy property in the hills because it was so cheap because the smog was so bad, you couldn't see anything. Oh. So, so now they clear up the smog. Now, now it's suddenly worth a lot. Well, it's really changed. And that's one thing that, that we've seen. I've lived in California basically 25 years now. And I can remember, you know, heading down the hills and looking across the Los Angeles basin 20, 25 years ago and just seeing like a putrid layer of brown smog. But uh, we see a lot less of that today, even though there's a lot more people here and a lot more cars, the, the energy efficiencies that people have achieved and the, the Clean Air Act that the state has really proposed and pushed has made an enormous difference. And, and obviously, not just in terms of beauty and, and visibility, but in health for people as well. Well, okay, on that note, we're going to keep going up to the sky. Um, <laughs> to, to, to better health and, and, and walking on water. Um, we're <laughs> we're going to go to, what about uh, Skylark? 
So um, yeah, that is, I mean, I told you I'm not allowed to have favorites, but that was one of the ones I did pick out. Oh, you know? uh, so, really? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, I enjoyed that. They're great clients. We had a client who was uh, really interested and passionate about the project. And, you know, we, we had so much fun with them. And it was a unique site in that they lived in a house there already, but the house didn't meet their needs. But they had built a beautiful swimming pool and spent a lot of money on it. And, you know, putting swimming pools on hills is not cheap or easy. So one of the goals was to keep that swimming pool there. But the actual lot area that we had to work with was not that large. And one of the problems we had was where to put the house because we are required to have parking and it's on a street which was a private street. So there was no parking. You needed to get your cars onto the site. And so the, the solution we came up with, which was pretty creative, was to essentially move the cars, the, the parking of the cars to the basement using elevators. And if you look at the design of the house, most of the program is either at the upper level or in the basement. There's just one room at the ground floor, which allowed us to keep enough room to park cars and get onto the site and also keep that swimming pool in place. So it's a very unusual house in that it's got a big upper level and a big basement and uh, a very small main level, which only contains the, the kitchen and living room space. Everything else on that level is open and garden or parking or pool. So that was really interesting. Also, just because of the topography of the lot, we were able to cut almost like a canyon through the middle of the house that would allow light into the basement. But also it means that nearly every room in, in this house, whether it's in the basement or on, on the main level or the upper level has a terrific view. Nobody's looking at anything except the city, which is fantastic. Well, I'm looking on, let's see, there's no page, what page number is it? 234. I, I love how these windows open up. They just like, it's not just roll up. They just, they tilt Go out the outside. They tilt. <laughs> yes, yes. It's fly that away. Was, that was where again you see the influence of our clients there. In that they they wanted the house. They had three dogs and some kids on the way, and they wanted a house that was industrial, a little bit industrial, not too precious that you know could could stand the three dogs and the kids and whatever else they threw at it. So we always had more of an industrial aesthetic. It's not like, for example, the Williams house we just talked about, which is all white marble and silver. This is a completely different type of feel. And a lot of this comes from our clients, you know, or their and the designers that we work with as well. So, you know, a client will have a, a direction for the house and at the beginning we always have them show us pictures of things they like, irrelevant of the style. It doesn't really matter what style it is just what do you like and then we try and incorporate that and then try to incorporate their vision into the house i tell you Trisha, i love nothing more than walking around a client house at the end where they're showing one of their friends or somebody around and they're they're talking it all up like they they everything is their idea then you know you've done really well <laughs> once they've taken ownership over it it's like yeah. it's sold <laughs> so they've done it you know they, they the ownership is great that's what we want we want people to have their lives there we're, we're fortunate enough right now to be designing a house with the daughter of a client of ours which obviously ages me but at the same time <laughs> it's a, it's really kind of fun to have the idea to be able to design a house for somebody who grew up in a house that we designed as well that's also very exciting 
<laughs> then, then you know you've really made it then. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and on the scholar, I, I like, yeah, you, a lot of the other ones were, were the more white moral, but this has got a very warm feel to it, very much more brown and tan. And um, that kind of feels a bit like Los Angeles, like the desert. Um, I think you're going to see, especially as we as we move beyond this book, our new projects, that they reflect the times we're designing in. And I'm seeing a shift to more natural materials. And, you know, we're designing our new homes that are, we're starting to finish up now or that we're in the middle of construction of are all going to have a slightly different look than some of the homes in the book. So we'll have to do a sequel at one point. And uh Maybe three or four years from now, we can get another book out there with a whole other set of homes. It'll be interesting to see the contrast between both. Oh, that's true. You'll have to send me that book. Oh, definitely. Draw it and design it first, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it's it's almost you're you're almost more dare I say um, doing landscape architecture because it's just so open it's like of course the interiors are beautiful but the exteriors are just equally magnificent i think that's really we we like and i think we are successful if our homes are an integral part of their environment or their site so you know that's a really nice compliment thank you you know if you, if you think of a home as being an extension of landscape architecture in a way that really is what we're trying to achieve we're, we're, we don't want objects that sit you know, by themselves and have, make, have no interaction with their surroundings. We want projects that hopefully blend into their surroundings and feel part of it and kind of easily flow out into the landscape and into the garden so that it's hard to discern where one ends and the other starts. Oh, yeah, for sure. And definitely Los Angeles is the perfect place for that. Um, well, Paul, I want to thank you so much. It's been so nice chatting with you uh, today. And uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, can you tell our audience, uh, what are some of the exciting things that you're working on now? Thank you. And thank you so much, Tricia, for having me. It's been really a lot of fun. Um, more houses. <laughs> That's probably what I'm working on. But what's, we, we have an interesting group of houses right now in that uh We've got homes that are not just here uh, we have in Los Angeles. We have homes right now that we're working on in uh, Nevada and in British Columbia and in Northern California. And also we have a home we're working on, I'm drawing right now in England and another home I'm working hard on in Thailand. So it's been, it's really fascinating to see how, what applies to different places and what needs to adjust to different places. So obviously everyone comes to us because they like the style of home that we do and they want something that's a bit like a California house for want of a better word. But they, when you get there and you're in this different environment, you have to deal with different things, you know, like snow or bugs or, you know, heat, <laughs> humidity. And, uh, you know, then people live a little bit different. There's cultural differences to consider as well when we're working abroad. And uh, it just makes life that little bit more interesting and fascinating. So it's very exciting for us. And we're, we're very, just very fortunate and always thankful that we have the client group that we do and the, and just the, the ability to be able to do this as a job it's really amazing it doesn't feel like a job most of the time yeah i definitely got that sense for you it, it it you you just grew up loving architecture 
Yeah, I, I think I don't know what else I could have done. Someone asked me that recently. What would you have done? And I would just draw a blank. I can't think of anything else. So uh, this is me. <laughs> so yeah, if you had to choose, we, you know, actually I'm on the um, executive committee for the Florida ASLA. We were all asked that question. Uh, what would you do if you weren't a landscape architect? But you would just be like... Uh, I don't know. I just be an architect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I design a different type of building. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Guess not. It's a bit of a vocation for me. That's for sure. <laughs> um, well, again, uh, thank you so much for being here today, Paul. And uh, we hope to hear more from you soon. Thank you again, Tricia. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here today. And again, the book is McLean Design, Creating the Contemporary House, published by Rizzoli in 2019.